Well, today we leap quite a bit forward <clears throat> in the narrative. Uh, last week, we in the past two weeks, we were at Mount Sinai, and now we're leaping uh, forward to the book of Numbers. We will, Again, we're going to come back to some texts that we've skipped over when we get into the season of Lent. We have two more Sundays before we come into the season of Lent. And during that time, we're going to go back and cover some texts that we skipped over uh, with regards to uh, things like sacrifices and cutting of covenants and those kinds of things. But um, So we will return to some of this ground. But today we're jumping in the text all the way to Numbers 21. And in Numbers 21, we're approaching the end now of a long wilderness wanderings. We, we, we jumped ahead time-wise, chronologically, 40 years for... Uh, we're coming now to the end of the first generation of Israel in the wilderness and uh, and now looking forward with the second generation to the entrance into the land. Uh, we're soon here will be in Deuteronomy where Moses now sort of reestablishes the covenant with this next generation and then led by Joshua. As you know, Moses will be unable to enter the land because of his finally cracking and uh, and striking the rock twice uh, when, when the Lord did not tell him to do that. The Lord, you'll remember, told him to speak to the rock on that occasion, but Moses was frustrated, and we, as we've been reading along, even the little bit that we've read, kind of get it, why Moses finally snaps and loses his temper. I mean, you know, the, the people that the Lord has given him to lead are, uh, are uh, troublesome people, and, and Moses snaps, and he takes the staff, and he strikes the rock. But having seen in the past the, the significance of that rock, God standing upon it and, and the rock being struck by God's command. And this being a picture of God bearing the judgment that was due to Israel so that he could give them water when Moses then on his own strikes it. Um, of course, it's, a, it's, a, it's an egregious uh, act. Uh, God has been struck, and now from that will issue forth water. Merely ask, merely ask. Um, so, so Moses will not be allowed in. The first generation will not be allowed in because of their grumbling, because of their sinning, because of their reluctance. You'll remember they, they come up to the land and they send spies into the land, uh, the, the promised land, and they come back and 10 of the 12, all but Caleb and Joshua, say, we're not going in there. There are giants in there. And, and, and there's no way we beat them, right? The odds are so stacked against us. And it was only Caleb and Joshua who said, no, we, we, we must go in there. We're, all we were doing was surveying. This isn't a time to decide whether we go or not. This is the whole purpose of being here. The Lord is, the Lord is giving us this land, just like he did in Egypt. Had to, don't you all remember what he did there? And now, and now you're not going to go in the land? And, and they say, no, we're not going in. And the Lord, you know, Korah leads a rebellion, and the, the earth opens up and swallows a bunch of them, and the Lord says, all right, fine, we're not going. And, and then the people say, okay, 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 we will go. And the Lord said, no, you're not going. And if you do, go ahead, you're on your own now. And that doesn't go well. And so the Lord says, you know what, you're not entering the land. And we're going to wander out here until you all die. And then I'm going to give it to your children. And your children will enter the land. And that's where we are now in the text that we jump to today in Numbers 21. Aaron has just died just previous to this text. Moses has taken the, the mantle of Aaron and given it to Aaron's sons. So now 
the priesthood has rolled over to the next generation um, and here we are and looking to go in now that's maybe what makes the text so disturbing and frustrating if you remember now again we've looked at sometimes in this little series we're doing on christ in the old testament we've looked at big narratives and in today we're looking at just a small little story in the narrative it's just tucked in here in fact it's not even given that much attention in the text it's not it's not like moses elaborates on the significance of this it's just a short little story in verses 4 through 9 in chapter 21 of israel's sin god sends this creative little <laughs> uh, judgment upon them with serpents and then provides a way out and they move on just just a couple verses and out we go um yet of course this story is picked up by jesus in john chapter 3 and flooded then with significance right but it's just a little story you'd read right over it if you weren't paying attention um and and yep jesus sees it as being this uh, amazing picture of what he is doing um so it, it gives it significance that we need to come and slow down and pay attention to. And in fact, I would argue, in, in just like the Moses, on, you know, God on top of the mountain and Israel at the bottom of the mountain and Moses in the middle, and seeing in that picture the grand picture of the whole story of the world. So in many ways, we have the whole story of the Bible in this little five-verse story in uh, Numbers 21 of the Bronze Serpent. Um, so we're studying just a small little passage today, verses 4 through 9. I won't read it again as the text was already read in our Old Testament reading this morning. But I want us to think about three things, three very obvious things in the text. Number one, the sin. Number two, the judgment. And number three, the, the uh, deliverance that is provided by the Lord in the text. So let's start first with the sin. The sin here is one we're familiar with, right? We're, we're told that as they journey, the people become very discouraged and they begin to grumble. And they say to Moses, why did you bring us out here? Now, here they go. They're, they're wandering around, right? They've been, they've been walking in circles for 40 years. And these people who are now grumbling were little children. And now they've grown up to manhood and womanhood. And now their parents are dying. And we're not going in that land until that generation is gone. So these, their, their parents are dying, and here they are wandering around, and they're over, back over by the Red Sea. And so when you're by the Red Sea, you know, the stories start coming back about what happened here 40 years ago and what the Lord did and uh, this amazing deliverance out of Egypt. But here we've been wandering around the wilderness for 40 years, and so it starts. Well, why did we do this anyway? This seems kind of pointless. Why didn't we just stay in Egypt? You know, did we have to come out here? Is it because there were no graves in Egypt? You know, remember all the complaints that we had from the beginning. And not only that, but there's no food out here. We're in the wilderness, and there's no water. And you know what? Frankly, we're getting sick of this ridiculous bread. I mean, the manna is getting boring by this time. You know, after years and years and years of manna and quail, and, you know, it's, it's tedious. And so these people are moaning and groaning and grumbling. Now, we're familiar with this. We know this. This has been the sin that we've seen over and over again. What's so discouraging about it now is it's the next generation. Right? We would get it if it was the first generation. But what's so sad about it and what's discouraging is these are the children. The sins of the father. 
to the third and fourth generation, right? We know that this is the way it goes, right? We, we, I see it, sadly, in my own children. You know, when you start to see your own sins manifested in them, you know, dad gets easily frustrated. <laughs> you know, this dad, me, uh, gets easily frustrated. And so when I see my own children snap at each other, you know, good thing they're not in the room, so they're not hearing me talk about them right now. Um, as, uh, as I see my own children snap at each other, sorry, guys, <laughs> this is the problem when your dad's a pastor. Um, you're the object lessons. But when, when I see them do this, I'm like, oh, right? I, I'm like, okay, I know where they got that from. You know, they've, they've seen that model before them, you know, for the number of their days. They've seen their dad snap, you know, and have little sharp comments uh, in response to frustrating problems. It's like this is the, this is the curse of, of generational sin. It, the children see it witnessed, and it, it manifests in their own life. It just becomes a habit. So I, I see stuff in myself, right, that I saw in my dad. Some stuff that as a kid frustrated me about my dad. And then I do it. Now, I see good things in me that I saw in my dad, too. So, I mean, you know, in case my dad listens to this sermon, you know, I need to, um, I, you know, I, I, I've seen good things in my dad, in my dad, too. But I see things in my own life. I'm like, ah, that's the stuff that used to make me frustrated my dad did. And here I am doing it, you know. And then I see the stuff that frustrates me about me in my children. And I'm like, oh, boy. So, you know, this is the way it goes. And I'm sure if, if, uh, if you were up here speaking, uh, you could, I'm sure, say the same thing. You see things in you that are true of your parents, and maybe you've passed it down to your children. Well, certainly that's what's going on here. But again, in this story, this isn't just a story about, oh, okay, our sins get passed down to our, our children. It, it, there is that, and we should be very concerned about that, obviously, when we can affect it. But, of course, it's a picture of something even bigger. Right? We have here a little pericope, a little story, a little, a little story in the grand story of the Bible, but it is a lens through which we can view the whole story of the Bible. Because this is the story of the scriptures that the sin of our father, Adam, was passed down to his children. Right? Romans 5, Paul makes this point. That we inherit corruption, we inherit guilt from our father, from that first generation, from Adam. Now, I cannot blame Adam. I, I, can't, I can't say, okay, so I'm off the hook. Just like this generation can't blame their parents and say, now they'll try it, right? We all try this. We all want to say, oh, see what my parents did to me? But it doesn't fly. We all have to stand. We all have to stand before God. This is our reading of the, our word of exhortation today in 2 Corinthians 5. We will all have to stand and give an account before the Lord for what we have done, whether good or ill. I, I can't go, well, hey, it was, it was the Adam you gave me, you know, which is what we by nature tend to do. It's what Adam himself did. It's the woman you gave me. Oh, it's the serpent you put in the, well, in the uh, garden with me. I can't blame Adam. But nonetheless... Adam, that, that founding of sin in Adam, by God's judgment, has been passed down to us all. Again, I am responsible for my sin, but nonetheless, it does not deny the doctrine of original sin that the corruption that I have is something I was born with. Now, I am responsible for Adam's sin inasmuch as he was my perfect representative. That's why I can't just throw the blame off on him as if he's just some guy out there, right? You know, our representatives in Washington, we blame them for all kinds of things. 
you know, oh, I didn't, I didn't vote for him, I didn't vote for her. Okay, that's fine. They are not perfect representatives. But Adam was a God-chosen perfect representative. You are to blame for what Adam did. By one man's sin came death to all men, for in him all sinned. Right, Romans 5, 12. So we are responsible for that. But nonetheless, we get a picture of it in this story that the sins of the fathers, the sins of that generation are passed, passed down now and we're seeing them bubbling up in this second generation. So just the fact that the first generation went and died in the wilderness doesn't now purify the stage of the world and now we finally get something we can begin with. And this should be a reminder to us, right? This is not a problem. The sin problem is not a problem that is going to be solved by the next generation. It is going to take an intrusion. It is going to take a new Adam to come in and to deal with this problem. This is not a problem that's going away one generation after another. We're not going to progress our way to some utopia. We're not going to progress our way out of the sin problem. And so we see it manifesting itself in this next generation. And not only that, but we have a generation, I mean, and, and I know the older generation always looks at the younger generation as doing this, and in many ways it is true about a younger generation, that they look at the gifts that the generation before them had, the stories that the generation before them had, uh, before them had and they blow them off. You know, like we're sick of this stupid bread. Well, that bread is gift from God that your father's were begging for because they were dying in the wilderness. But again, they've never been dying in the wilderness, and so now they look at this bread and go, golly, can't we get something better than this? Right? This is, this is typical. This is what we, we all do. We sort of despise what we have from the generation before us because we don't know what has been gone through to get us to this point. It's why they say, you know, just as a second-generation business owner i'm not technically the owner of the school but you get the point running a business right they say like the rate of failure for a second generation business owner like when the son inherits the business of the father that the failure rate is like 50 percent and the third generation is 90 percent 90 percent failure rate when it goes from father to son and then again from father to son that third generation is 90 percent and the reason is because that first generation, you know, he, he dug down, he knew what it took to, you know, my dad, my dad, you guys know my dad, you know, my dad was just a warrior, you know, he just like whatever sacrifices have to be made, he just knows one speed, it's like I'll, I'll do whatever we have to do to, to get there. Now, I come in second generation, and I haven't had to do that, I've inherited something from him. all his work, all of his ambition, all of his sufferings, I've inherited. Now, I was there. I did witness it, so I have that in the back of my head. I, I remember what it was to go through it. I just didn't go through it like he did. So it's still there. Now, I can take up that mantle, and if I'm, if I'm, if I'm faithful with it, I can carry that on, but it's a 50% fail rate. But now my children, they don't remember what my dad did. They inherit it again, right? I, they, they don't see me making the sacrifices my dad made because I don't have to. I've inherited something that's already moving. You know, and this is how it works generationally. And this is true with the faith also. You know, if we're not intentional about the faith with our children, you know, again, I'll just, let's take my dad. You know, stay on my family here. Um, my dad, you know, was not a believer. 
And then in the Marine Corps meets a man named Bob Hoppy, and Bob leads him to the Lord. And my dad has a pretty significant conversion experience. You know, going from a non-believer to a believer, and it changes his life, and, and here he goes. It just radically changes his life, and eventually just takes everything he has and puts it into a ministry and says, I, I, I want to be faithful, right? Now, again, I've only known the faith. You know, I'm, I'm that next generation who, as an amazing gift of God to me, I was brought up in the faith. I've never known a time I wasn't a believer. And that's a wonderful thing, but of course, it's also a dangerous thing. Right? Because there's that, my dad, and as many of you, I know, I know some of your testimonies, right? Who know what it was like to be out there, not a believer, and to know the joy now and the hope of having meaning and knowing sins forgiven and all these kinds of things. That next generation, in some sense, can take that for granted. It's a danger of being raised in a Christian home, right? It has its own dangers. I mean, no one would say, oh, I wish I had, you know, I wish I could have known what it was like not to be a Christian, but there's a danger to having been raised in a Christian family. And we who raise Christian children need to be very concerned about that because they can begin to despise the testimony, the, 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 the inheritance that has been handed down to them. And then that next generation, even more. Think about the founding of this country. You know, you got people who are willing to come over here first generation and like risk life and limb. I mean, the sacrifices of those initial pilgrims that landed up there in Cape Cod and, and made their way over to Plymouth. I mean, losing lives and bringing their children and risking the lives of their children just so they can have this and start something and, and be committed and untethered by the state to be able to, to live out their religious liberty. I mean, it's amazing. But boy, how quickly before all of a sudden a couple generations and the church had kind of thinned out and the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of those people did not have the same religious zeal that they had. I mean, this is natural. Add into that original sin and we've got a real, we've got a real problem and that's the problem that we see manifesting itself in this small way here. So, all right, the sin. It's multi-generational. It's not going away. It doesn't get cured by the next generation. In fact, some ways it can bubble up and even become worse, and that's what we see manifesting itself here. Secondly, the judgment, the curse. One of the things you see in the wilderness is the Lord is very creative in the way that he brings judgment upon his people. Um, there's no shortage of ways the Lord can do it. I mean, sometimes he literally just opens the ground and swallows them and closes it back up. I mean, that that's... And that's creative. And this one here, they, they sin and God sends serpents that just start biting everybody. And they're called fiery serpents, I assume, not because they were literal on fire, but most likely because of the effect of the venom and whatever uh, the snakes are doing in biting them. But it's killing these people. So they're whining and complaining. The Lord is sending snakes into the camp that are biting people, and these people are perishing. And so what do they do? Well, they do what we all do when we finally get in trouble. We plead for mercy. We ask for help. Okay, okay, we didn't mean it. Okay, we're sorry. Are we sorry? I don't know. Or do we just not like being bitten by snakes? You know, we'd rather not get spanked. Thank you very much. So I'm, I'm sorry. And so they cry out to Moses, isn't there anything you can do? Okay, we've recognized we've sinned against the Lord. Is there any way to make this stop? Now, again, I, I, I think that when we hear about serpents and snakes, like it has to raise a little red flag in our head, right? I mean, it does take us back again to the Garden of Eden. So in the Garden, not only do we have sin 
But think about the consequences of that sin. What was the consequence of the sin of Adam by God when, when God brought judgment? Is it not in some way him turning us over to the serpent? I mean, he allows the serpent to bite them. Now, I know that we don't have that directly in the text, so we have to use some, some poetic license here. But, but he essentially lets Adam and Eve be bitten by the serpent. He, lets, he turns them over to the serpent. You, you want to grumble against God, right? Has God really said? The serpent comes in and tempts them. Has God really said you can't, you know, you can't eat of any of the trees? And they, he gets Adam and Eve grumbling against the Lord. Eve does come around and correct him. No, the Lord has not said that we can eat of all of them, but this one we may not eat or touch because the day we do will die. Now, remember, we even made the point there when we talked about this that that was incorrect. God never said you can't touch it. That makes God sound petty. He just said don't eat of this tree, right? Go ahead and enjoy everything. But we're going to let this one tree be a test. We'll call this the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in not eating of it, what you will be acknowledging is that you rely on me for the knowledge of good and evil. It's, 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 a, it's a measure of your dependence upon me and your recognition that you are a subordinate to me. Right? By not eating of that, you're looking to me for the knowledge of good and evil and not grasping after independence yourself. But the serpent comes and provokes Adam and Eve to grumble against the Lord. Why is he so stingy? Well, the serpent says to Eve, he knows that the day you eat, you will be like him. He doesn't want that. See? So you get in Adam and Eve this same grumbling spirit. Why is the Lord holding me back? Why is the Lord not giving, letting me be everything that I can be? Well, why is he doing this to me? And the curse then, the judgment on this, is God essentially letting them be bit by the serpent. Of turning them over and letting the serpent have his way with them. This is the nature of mankind from that point forward. We are underneath the tyranny of the serpent. Right? God turns us over to Satan in a certain sense. Always under his sovereign hand. Just like these serpents are sent by the sovereign hand of God. But by the sovereign hand of God, we are underneath the, the, the power, the bite, if you will, of the serpent. This is why uh, it, uh, Satan comes to Jesus in the third temptation and says to him, bow to me and I will give you all the nations. Now, what do you mean, I will give you all the nations, as if the nations are yours to give? We all, uh, many people read that that. Uh, that temptation, as if it's not really a temptation at all, it's stupid, because Satan doesn't have authority over the nations. I disagree. He does have authority over the nations, under the sovereign hand of God. But that is the judgment that the nations are under, is that they are under the bite of the serpent. They are, they've been turned over to the serpent. They've been infested with serpents. By God, never, never outside of God's sovereign authority, but underneath God's sovereign authority, underneath the hand of his judgment, they have been turned over to the serpent, the nations. And so Satan says to Jesus, bow to me, I'll surrender them to you. Now, of course, had Jesus bowed to him, he would have forfeited his ability to own the nations, and hence it would have been a trick. It was, it was a, a trick. But, but nonetheless, it was a temptation that he did have the authority to make 
in that he was underneath the sovereign authority of God. So in this story then, not only do we get a picture of our sin, our grumbling sin in Adam, but also the real judgment that was brought by the Lord. We're turned over, if you will, to the bite of the serpent. Okay, well, all of that brings us to really what we know going in is the significance of the text, and that is the deliverance that the Lord offers. Israel has sinned. They've been turned over to the bite of the serpent. The serpent has bit them, and they are perishing. And they cry out to the Lord. Credit to them that at least they, they cry out to the Lord instead of running, I guess. And the Lord delivers them. Well, two things to note about the deliverance. First, notice how the deliverance comes. It comes by the intercession of Moses. And this is significant given what we talked about last week. Right? That they do, in this sense, they do not have access to God. They come to Moses. Moses goes to God. And this, the, the uh, title of the sermon two weeks ago I, I don't expect you to remember, but uh, I remember because in working on the bulletin, I had to change out that title for this title, and the title two weeks ago was Do Not Enter, right? You do not have access to God, but God has provided access through his mediator, through this one, Moses. God has provided Moses, and Moses will seek your good, and he did it on top of the mountain for your father's. Fire was going to come down and, and destroy you. But Moses stepped up and pleaded their case. And because God's love for Moses, he said, okay, and he relented. And so here, now the second generation comes to Moses and says, isn't there anything you can do? Is there the possibility of deliverance? And Moses goes on their behalf and asks. And so we ought to remind ourselves again of the intercessory work of our mediator. Right, that Christ is all through this passage just as he has been all through every passage we've looked at. He's not only the, the, it's not only by his work on the cross that he achieves our salvation. It's by the fact he's not just the sacrifice, that is to say. He's also the priest. Right, he's everything in the story. He's the priest and he's the sacrifice. Right? He, it's his blood, and if we go, and we will when we get into Lent, we'll talk about the Day of Atonement and the sacrificial system. And you know, It's his blood that gets sprinkled on the mercy seat. It's his blood that brings peace, but he's also the one who sprinkles it. He is the priest, and he's the lamb. And so also here, he's Moses, and he's the serpent on the stick. Right? He is the bronze serpent lifted up in the wilderness. So first, the deliverance is by the intercession of Moses. But then secondly, the Lord then sends these snakes. And when they say, you know, is there, is there deliverance? The Lord could just say, he could just say, okay, fine, you're delivered. I know which of you have faith and those who have faith, you're delivered. But he doesn't. He does this bizarre thing where he tells Moses to go make a serpent and put it on a stick impale it this bronze serpent impale this serpent on a stick the very thing that's biting them which was sent by the hand of god in his sovereign judgment impale that snake this executioner on the stick and set it there and whoever by faith 
looks upon that impaled snake will be healed. Interesting. And again, no detail, nothing is said about this. It's just there, red, red over, and all of a sudden we're dealing with Moab. Until we get to John 3. And Jesus then reaches back into the Old Testament and grabs this story and says, do you all remember that story? Just as Moses made a serpent and lifted it up in the wilderness and all who looked on her were healed, so as the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. Jesus then takes this story for us and links it, helps us learn how to read the Old Testament. And just as Paul said in Second Corinthians, excuse me, in First Corinthians ten, when he says, "And they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, for that rock was Christ." It's as if Jesus is saying, "Just as they looked at that bronze serpent, for that bronze serpent was Christ. It was me." Well, what does this then tell us about the death of Jesus? What is what is put on that stick? What is being impaled? On that stick, uh, sin, the very thing that destroyed them, the executioner, the curse, the judgment is being impaled by the Lord and set up there. The, the, the very judgment that he sent out of his justice, not out of his anger, out of his justice, is impaled on that stick. And when you look at it, you will live. Well, this tells us something about Jesus on the cross. What are you looking at? When you look at Jesus being lifted up on the cross, see, if we don't, if we don't make the connection with, with uh, Numbers 21, when it says, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up, and when he's lifted up, he'll draw all men to himself, we think lifted up there means like glorified, and it is glorified. But the lifting up he's talking about there is the lifting up on the cross, where he's impaled on the stick, where he's impaled on the cross, because he jumps right in there in the very famous John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Right? It'd be like saying, God so loved Israel that he gave them a bronze serpent. But in this case, it's not a bronze serpent. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes, whoever, so whosoever looks on him will not perish, but have everlasting life. So again, what do we see when we see him impaled on the cross? Well, yes, we see our sin impaled. The old man, like we talked about, there on the cross is the sinner impaled. There is our sin nailed to the cross, for as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we through him might be the righteousness of God. Jesus then becomes our sin. He becomes the old man. He becomes the sinful Bill Spanger. He takes on the sin of Adam. And there he is lifted up on the cross. My sin is incarnate. It's very strong language. Because we say, well, no, 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 he's not. He's not the incarnation now of sin. He's the pure righteous one. Yes, he is. And hence, as such, he becomes the incarnation of our sin. That's what it means for him to be lifted up. He bears all of our sin in his flesh so that there on the cross, he's the very incarnation of our sin. 
And it's interesting that as such, he's the serpent. Now, he's not the serpent. But on the cross, the serpent is being impaled. Hence, we hear the voice of one. Now, remember, in the, in the temptations of Jesus, you will remember the repetitive phrase, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, right? If you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you are the Son of God, you know, if God's promised that he's got you, then why don't you jump off this temple? Hey, if you're the Son of God, I'll give you all these uh, nations. Bow before me. And there at the cross, we don't see Satan visibly like he, we have him in the temptations, but we hear him. We hear him in the voice of the one who says, if you are the Son of God, come down off that cross. Now, why would Satan want Christ to come down off that cross? Because in the crucifixion of Satan, even though we've talked about it before, it's like on the one hand, Satan is torn, right? Because on the one hand, he can't stop himself. He fills the heart of Judas. He wants Christ crucified. He wants Christ eliminated. Yet at the same time, he's torn because if Christ is crucified, he's impaled. Right? If Christ is lifted up, then the snake is put on a stick and the head of the serpent is crushed. And so he's, he's in this thing where it's like on the one hand, he's, he's, you know, yes, Judas, betray him. Yes, Pontius Pilate, even though you wash your hands, nonetheless, send him to crucifixion. Yes, yes, yes. And on the other hand, if you're the son of God, come down off that cross. There's this inner, either way, I lose kind of thing. He can't, he can't stop himself. But there he is in the voice of that one saying, if you're the son of God, come off that cross. Because on that cross, sin is being impaled. On that cross, the serpent is being impaled. He is being crushed so that we who look upon him, the, the death of death, the death of our sin, the crushing of Satan, as we look upon him in faith, so we are healed. The snake-bitten sinner is healed. In this little story, is the whole story of the gospel. It's the, whole, the whole Bible is like in that beautiful little story that, again, Moses just <laughs> writes right over. We are sinners, the sons of Adam, grumblers, just like he was in the garden, who still, as Mark prayed this morning, grumble against God's providences. It's never good enough. He doesn't give us, well, you know, who are just as guilty as Adam, who can never point the finger at anyone else. And we are those who are snake-bitten. We are those who are under the curse by God's sovereign hand. But we are those who have been given an amazing gift. We have before us our sin impaled on the cross in the form of our Savior who bears our sin and in so doing crushes the head of the serpent. And he's there. Just look at him. Just look and believe. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever looks upon him, whosoever believes in him, whosoever looks at the cross and trusts him will not perish. Satan has no victory over you. None. You will not perish, but you will have everlasting life. Believe it, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace to us, even in the midst of our sin. 
Again, so easy to look at Israel's grumbling and complaining and be worn out by it. But Father, how you must be worn out by us. And so we ask not only your forgiveness, but we thank you that you have given us the greater bronze serpent. You have given us your son. And you have put him on a stick and raised him up for all to see. You have impaled him and impaling him, you have impaled our sin and you have impaled the serpent. And we thank you for that victory. So give us hearts of faith that look upon him that we indeed might know everlasting life. Thank you for our forgiveness and our hope in him. Amen.